Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. The Endangered Species Act recently celebrated its 50th anniversary. If you're a longtime listener of the show, You know that I love to dabble in this topic. It is multifarious, it is complex, it is fascinating, really interesting, and it has a lot of sway in wildlife conservation. It affects management decisions. When the law is intended to work, there's a lot of obstacles thrown our way, legally speaking and politically speaking as well. And I brought on a return guest, my friend David Wilms, who is the co-host of a very popular podcast called Your Mountain. If you're a regular listener of Meat Eater, you may have heard them. He and Nephi recently on the show. And David knows the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, like the back of his hand. He also teaches a lecture at the University of Wyoming on this very subject. He helps all of us go into the weeds of the ESA the flaws to it, the benefits, where the law stands, if it needs modernization, in a very riveting conversation we had that I'm bringing to you all today on the podcast. So if you are fascinated by the Endangered Species Act, the different caveats about it, want to learn more, David is a great resource, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him today on the podcast. David, thank you so much for rejoining the podcast. And we're talking about a really cool subject, something you're really excited about and passionate about, the Endangered Species Act. Remind my listeners, what is your affiliations and why are you so animated about the ESA? Uh, sure. First of all, thanks for having me back on your podcast. I always enjoy visiting with you. Um, my background is, so So I'm a lawyer uh, by training. I've spent uh, um, 18 years now, I guess, in, in legal practice. And I've worked a lot on endangered species issues over the years. I, I spent a lot of years working for the state of Wyoming through the attorney general's office there, and uh, as well as working for former governor Matt Mead uh, in Wyoming. And we you know, threatened endangered species were a, a centerpiece issue in wildlife management because of wolf and grizzly bear and other, other uh, listed species there. Uh, and I also teach a class at uh, the University of Wyoming, a, a gra- undergraduate and graduate level course on the, the the Endangered Species Act and the intersection of law, policy, and science. Really, how how the act uh, came into being and how it's been implemented over time, and sort of forward looking how it might be implemented in the future. And then, as a selfless plug, also uh, uh, co-host a. Uh, a podcast called Your Mountain, where we we talk about these types of topics as well, uh, very similarly to the way you do. I think you guys have probably the you guys are more wonky than I am at times because I come come about it from obviously a media perspective and more recently a public policy perspective. But all of you guys are 
very seasoned experts. Um, and we connected initially because of our shared interest in public policy. You guys brought me out to Wyoming to get my first deer. A lot of cool things, a lot of overlaps. So yes, I'm very familiar with the awesome work that you guys do, especially on the Your Mountain podcast. But as it relates back to the ESA, I think everyone has heard about this law. They know it's a really kind of old law. Maybe it's antiquated in some people's view, but what is its exact purpose 50 years later since implementation for people who may not know what it does? What is its purpose in your view? And I guess in the legal way um, or legal perspective, what is the ESA intended to do? I love this question actually um, because most people that are familiar with the Endangered Species Act, when they think about what is its purpose, they automatically go to it's to prevent extinction, right? It's to keep species here. And I agree with that. But I also think, not think, I know there's a second piece to this that's often overlooked, right? So one of the, one of the purposes is absolutely to provide a program for the conservation of endangered species and threatened species and the ecosystems upon which they depend. That is in section 2B of the act that is right up front. But sometimes we forget that in section 3.3 of the act, there's, and this is, I get a little wonky, right? So I apologize for this, but there's, there's a, it's the definition section and in the definitions of it, um, and they define conserve, conserving conservation. Remember in the purposes, I said, it's program for conservation. Well, conservation also means doing what's necessary to recover a species to the point that the protections of the act are no longer necessary. So there are really two purposes to the act, prevent extinction and recover species so we can get them off the list, right? And, and I, sometimes I think that second part is missed or forgotten. That's very true. And I think a common refrain I've heard, and I've used this, before and and you can correct me if this is inaccurate. So relating to both the extinction prevention component and the recovery component, we often hear a figure tossed out that of the listed species, any species that has ever been listed, 100% have been prevented from going extinct, but only 2 to 3% of those listed species have successfully recovered and been delisted. What is wrong with that claim in your mind? Or is it partially correct, not correct? Uh, so... Here, here's the here's the thing with that claim in, on both sides. So, the the Endangered Species Act has become hyper politicized over the past 25, 30 years, probably since the late 1980s, and we fall, we wind up falling into two camps. We find it fall into the camps of saying we think the act can work better, we should change the act, or don't change the act at all because it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, which is preventing extinction. So you hear these two arguments. You hear the argument of no species that's been listed has ever been um, has ever gone extinct, and then you hear the other side. Uh, saying, well, only two or three percent of species ever listed have been delisted due to recovery. And both of those are partially right, but also partially wrong um, because they miss important facts. So let, let me break it down a little bit. So on the 100% of species listed never going extinct, well, there's actually some evidence out there, uh, and I don't remember who conducted this uh, this study. There's a report done a number of years ago that suggested there could be upwards of 80 species that are on the list right now that are extinct. But scientists are reluctant to, you know, call it basically and say, "Yep, they're extinct. We should take them off of the list for that." Um, and and so 
<laughs> technically, I think you can say close to 100% of species listed have not been declared extinct. But functionally, there are actually probably some species that were listed that were extinct before they were even put on the list. And then a number of species that are listed that are probably extinct now and we just haven't been willing to say it. So there's that piece of it. And then on the other side of this 2 to 3% um, recovery and, and saying the fact that we only have 2 or 3% that have come off the list means that the act's not working. You know, I'd say you have to take a slightly deeper dive. So yes, it's true that probably about 3% of species that have been listed have ever been delisted. But why is that? You know, and, and I think when you really dive into it, you say, okay, what, how do we delist a species? And one of the things that we do is we create a recovery plan. And species that have recovery plans in place, which I, I don't know the exact number, but the last time I, I, I dived in, about 40% of species listed did not have recovery plans. So that's a, that's a big number. But the species that did, and, and those plans are updated periodically, they're actually meeting their benchmarks and moving towards recovery. And for some of these species, it can take decades to recover because their reproductive rates can be really slow. Um, their habitats can be limited. There can be all sorts of reasons why it takes a while to bring them back. Um, some of them, you know, we've had hundreds of species listed within the past 15 years, and you can't expect recovery to occur overnight. And so, um, yeah, it takes a long time to recover species. And so to to have two to three percent come off the list, while it seems like an, a low number, you know, maybe maybe doesn't contemplate some of the the other things at play. Um, you know, at why we have only that number, right? So that's why I say it's yeah, it's partially right. It's a it's technically a true number, but is is that actually evidence that the act isn't working right? And and I would argue, no, I don't think that's great evidence that it's not working right. I also would say. That claiming 100% of the species are, um, that it's prevented the extinction of 100% of the species listed uh, is not a great argument for saying that the act is working great because, like I said, there's, you know, dozens of species on the act that, or on the list that probably are extinct. So, you know, it's, there's nuance in all of this. And I kind of hate it when a, an entire act is boiled down to a couple of talking points. It does have a lot of different components to it. And I appreciate the clarification because you know better, I think, than most people what the law entails. And I know there's a lot of obstacles to delisting certain species. You guys very well know out West, there's a lot of contention over delisting whenever it is determined, as it has recently been with a subspecies of grizzly bear in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And more recently, the tussle back and forth between gray wolves. Why is it... In, in your mind, legally speaking, why has there been opposition to the delisting of those particular species? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a pretty easy one. Um, the, the more charismatic the species, the, um, the more difficult it is to remove them from the act, particularly when on the backside of that, uh, states are looking at putting in place regulated hunting seasons for those species. And there it is just wolves and grizzly bears are among the most divisive in that regard of 
whether you should be able to hunt them or not be able to hunt them. Uh, and so it creates this incredible tension uh, in, in delisting. And it actually, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate because, um, you know, the, the, the idea of hunting or not hunting something really, for the most part, shouldn't factor into a delisting determination. So long as the the regulatory mechanisms, meaning the hunting seasons, those things are in place that are structured in a way that ensure that the species is not going to become threatened again, um, then it really shouldn't be an issue. But it is. It's a it's a very political issue. It's not so much a scientific issue, but a very very political issue, and it's made it incredibly difficult for those two species. What's interesting is that most species that are proposed for uh, for delisting are not challenged through litigation. We have this almost a misconception out there because so much attention is focused on some of these bigger charismatic species, uh, the more popular ones that are heavily litigated that you don't actually like when you really dive into it, you, you don't realize that actually most of these species, there is no litigation. They, there's a proposal delist, delist, they move through the process and, Ultimately, they get delisted. It just doesn't work that way for some of these more charismatic species, unfortunately. And is that, a, is that why there's a prevalence of these different lawsuits, commonly known as sue and settle, or as you told me, sue and not settle? Um, does, I would say, abuse of the Equal Access to Justice, Justice Act when it comes to these charismatic species, does that often become a common feature or a symptom as to why the ESA can't work as properly as it should, as it's understood to those of us who are not lawyers? So I would separate this concept. You know, when, when we talk sue and settle and equal access to justice act and, and, um, and the litigants that, that are really aggressively involved in these ESA types of cases, I think we need to break it down into two places in, in two ways. And one is at the petitioning to list a species phase and one is at the delisting phase. And the reason I called it sue and not settle is because when we were exchanging some text messages is because at the, at the delisting phase, it's, it's not sue and settle. It, they're, they're, they're not mass lawsuits. Nobody's really in it to try and recover attorney's fees uh, or anything like that. There are actually only a handful of groups that tend to litigate on these delistings and only a handful of species that are really, like I mentioned, that are, that are litigated. It's, it's, it's less than 10% of all species delisted have ever actually been litigated uh, or that have been proposed for delisting, excuse me, that have actually been litigated. And of those, only a handful of them uh, and wolves and bears are the two shining examples uh, are instances where delisting has been prevented because of litigation. There's no settlement in those types of cases. Those are sue and don't settle. They run those out to completion to determine whether the Fish and Wildlife Service acted appropriately um, in and, and provided the appropriate analysis under the Endangered Species Act to actually delist the species. Where the sue and settle does come into play in a really, really big way is on the, the listing side. So you'll get these mass petitions. There's a history of these of, of petitions to list dozens or even hundreds of species at a time, right? They'll be, you know, they'll they'll just be all of these petitions submitted. 
And the way the act is constructed, and it's not how it was originally constructed. This is interesting. Um, but how it, th- there were amendments in 1982 that put this into place. So we have a, a system now on the listing side where if somebody submits a petition for a species to be listed, the Fish and Wildlife Service has to respond within 90 days. They have to do a, uh, an analysis and say, you know, is a substantive finding. Say, is there enough here? Was there enough information presented that warrants us doing a, effectively a deep dive into whether this species should be listed or not? And if after 90 days they say, nope, there's not enough here, they just decline the petition. And if after 90 days they say, mm, there's enough here, we should look at it, they move on to what's called the 12-month finding. Well, that 12 months, this is getting kind of hyper-technical, but that 12 months actually starts the day the petition is, is submitted. And it's a hard deadline. So you have 12 months from the day the petition is submitted for the Fish and Wildlife Service to make an up or down determination on whether or not to list that species. The 90 days is squishy. Sometimes that 90 days turns into six months. Uh, it's kind of squishy. But the 12 months is not. It's firm. And what happens is you overwhelm the agency with dozens, if not hundreds of petitions to list. And then there's no way that the agency has the resources or the time to be able to respond to all of those petitions in that 12-month time frame. And so after that one year goes by, you can sue over all of those petitions. And you can settle. And in that settlement, you can get a couple of things. You can get, one, your attorney's fees paid for. And two, you can get uh, an agreement from the service to, to, by a date certain, consider those petitions. So when, when we talk about sue and settle, that's really the bucket we're talking about is on the listing side, not on the delisting side. That's a good, I would say differentiation between that because I probably have to educate myself more. I'm not a lawyer, so you would know more about this better than I do, but that's a, that's a good explainer. And I, it'll force people like me to understand the distinctions more um, because I think that's what kind of gets muddled with that. Um, But is there anything else besides lawsuits that does prevent species threatened or endangered from getting delisted other factors as well from your understanding Uh of the ESA? Yeah. And can we come back to that question one second? There's one other piece I think is worth mentioning about that last, um, that last question you had. And it's, I touched on it a little bit, but the, that 12 month deadline, this, this having exactly a year to respond or your subject, basically your subject to little litigation that you're going to lose was not in the 1973 text. It was added by Congress in 1982 in response to concerns that the service was taking too long to address petitions uh, to list a species. And so Congress came in and put this firm deadline on, but that 12-month deadline isn't rooted in much of anything other than, eh, that seems like enough time to get it done, right? But it's, it's not really rooted in any, you know, any, any science or anything like that. It's just... A year seems like a reasonable time frame, and what we've learned over time is mm, maybe it's not right. Uh, so we have this arbitrary deadline that was put that was put into the act nine years after it was originally passed to respond to an issue at the time, and then we've never taken the time to kind of look at that and say, eh, did that accomplish the goal we intended it to accomplish, and maybe should we fix that or not? So, and we might come back to that, but I did want to mention I think that's an sure. important piece of the act. So. 
Can you repeat that other question? Now I've yeah. forgotten the question you asked. Sorry. Is there any other factor aside from lawsuits that prevents delisting and recovery? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for recovery, one, one thing that repen- prevents recovery is not having a recovery plan. Right? Recovery plan is the roadmap to recovery. You get you get your your federal agencies, your state agencies, your your tribes, your local governments, your you know you know academics, everybody to the table to to come up with what does all of the science say and what are the the local politics on the ground and um, you know what what can we do to recover this species and then we write it down and we start implementing that plan and move towards those goals and when we when we hit those goals then it, it's a matter of uh, trying to get that species delisted. So the first challenge is not having recovery plans in place for hundreds of species that are listed right now. So they're effectively sitting in ESA purgatory with no pathway out. So that's problem number one, right? And then one of the other issues is frankly a staffing issue at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So when you get hundreds of petitions for example, and there are other reasons, I'm just giving you one example of, of, of many, but this is one example. When you have hundreds of petitions coming in to list a species and you have a hard deadline to respond to that, then a lot of your agency resources and personnel are going to be funneled to that to be able to uh, try and address that and reduce your risks of litigation and get all of that done. And frankly, there's no requirement by law to delist and the species is humming along, recovered, but not delisted, it might sit there for a while because the agency's resources are tied up in other places. They just don't have the personnel or the or the resources to actually do the delisting. And I know the numbers might be different now. At one point a few years ago, there were a couple dozen species ready to be delisted. They'd met all of their metrics. They're, they were, you know, they're in the queue for delisting. But resource priorities dictate dealing with some of these other things first. Like we have to address all of these petitions coming through the door, for example. Uh, And so it makes it harder to get species delisted. So there are a couple of examples right there of why, you know, recovery can be a little slow in some places and delisting might take longer than it should. And that is why you think certain improvements could be made to perhaps modernize the ESA from what you just mentioned. Um, What improvements in your personal view, do you think would make the law more streamlined, help recover more species? Few bullet points. What do you, what do you think simply could happen if, if it could be simply <laughs> conducted and done? Right. Um, well, okay. So one thing is actually it's actually already been done, uh, but I think it should be codified because technically, what the agency is doing, I think you could argue, you know doesn't actually comport with the law, but it actually is pretty effective. So a number of years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago, I think it was towards the tail end of the Obama administration, the Fish and Wildlife Service put into place this uh, seven-year work plan. And the idea behind this work plan was to prioritize the petitions that come in the door. Right. When somebody submits a petition to list a species, it's to look at it and prioritize that and say, okay, there are a number of buckets or bins or whatever you want to call them. And we should take, um, we'll look at these petitions and say, okay, based on our initial review, here's the bin that this goes in. So if it looks like a species is at really high risk of 
of blinking out, of extinction, really needs attention right away, that, that petition will get immediate attention. And they'll get that, that listing determination made, get it listed, start getting resources to it to try and recover. If, you know, maybe it's, you know, we don't know, there's some ongoing research going on that might give us some ideas whether or not it, it warrants listing, but right now we're not totally sure, but we have this petition. Maybe it goes in a bucket that's, you know, five years out before you actually address the petition. Um, the, and, and there are a host of other things in there, right, uh, uh, that would allow you to prioritize what bin this petition goes on and allows the, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service to use some discretion to determine what's the highest priority species and, and what do we have a little bit more time for and they can prioritize their workload and not be subject to these, um, uh, this constant litigation every 12 months because they're just overwhelmed. Now, they implemented that and that was really working really, really well. Right. But the issue is, and it was, I think it was born out of a, actually born out of a settlement, ironically enough. Um, but it actually was working really, really well. The issue is it's the law says you have 12 months. Now they've created, they've built in this thing for seven years. And some of the more litigious groups have said, well, as long as you're doing this, we won't sue, but there's no reason for them, uh, you know, at some point to say, ah, we don't think you're doing this right. And we're going to sue you uh, again on these 12 month deadlines. So I think codifying that work plan, and this gets back to my point that those 82 amendments were very arbitrary to put in a one year timeline, codify this work plan. Um, I think that would solve a ton of the sue and settle litigation. It would get rid of most of it, actually, if you could, if you could just codify that. That's a huge thing. I also think um, from the recovery planning side, you know, the act envisioned in the first place that states would take a huge leadership role in ESA implementation. And I don't think it's ever met its, its full intent in that way. And one place where, where that could, we could see that happen more is really empowering states uh, to lead on recovery planning. If they want to take it and run with it and build a recovery team and lead that recovery team and, you know, work with the fish and wildlife service, some should build a system to allow that to happen, for example, because if, if we can get these recovery plans in place and start implementing them, like I, like I told you that they're those recovery plans that are in place, metrics are being met and you're moving towards recovery. I mean, it, there's, there's pretty strong evidence that recovery plans equal recovery uh, in, in a lot of cases. And so, you know, getting a getting states more engaged in that way uh, and and really empowering states to take on that leadership role, I think is a is a big one as well. And another one that that I've been exploring uh, in that same capacity is the use of how we use Section 4D of the Endangered Species Act, which I don't want to get too wonky on this, um, but. 4D gives the Fish and Wildlife Service discretion to write a rule that limits the take of threatened species. Uh, so, so basically, uh, you can get really creative with your management under a 4D rule to allow a certain amount of, a ta of take to occur of a listed species, of a threatened species, uh, that, so that you don't negatively impact things like agriculture, for example. Um, I think there's an opportunity for the states to take on a, a much bigger role in managing threatened or endangered species under 
the guise of a 4D rule. You, you know, I, I don't think we've completely unlocked the potential of that provision of the act, which would not require necessarily uh, a con- you know Congress to get involved. It, it could be done through, mostly through rulemaking. There's there's one piece that would be pretty controversial that I think would have to go through Congress uh, to allow it to occur. But um, I think there's a lot of opportunity under under that piece of the ESA to make it work more effectively uh, and get a lot more buy-in on the ground for recovering species uh, and and limit the exposure for for folks like in the ag community in particular and, and others in industry that are that are working on these landscapes uh, to you know limit their exposure to to being um, you know, on the hook for accidentally taking a threatened or endangered species in the course of their day-to-day operations. Uh, so, I, like I said, I think that's another piece of it where we can really enhance the role of states in in species recovery. This has been a fun crash course in the ESA, and it's prompted me to want to research it more and go back to your comments and try to write it down as best as I can. And I hope any lawmakers or staffers listening can take your notes and implement it into any legislation they're contemplating on modernization efforts. Uh, but David, is there anything you want to direct my listeners to the course that you teach on this very subject? Anything else? I think I saw you're teaching a another like legal related course at the upcoming SEI convention, anywhere you want to direct my listeners to. Oh, wow. That's, uh, there's so much. Yeah. I I just started, it's a little too late to register for my course at the university of Wyoming now, but, uh, I I teach it every spring semester. So if you, if there's enough interest, uh, you know, I, I can offer it, uh, to open it up to remote, uh, students to take that class. Um, I do speak pretty regularly around the country. Um, there'll also be a book, uh, that I contributed a chapter to, um, and I, I would tell you the name of it if I knew it. I can circle back with you later. But there, sure. there'll be a book. Uh, it, it'll be a two-book series coming out this summer. Um, one that I that I wasn't part of, but one is the the history of the Endangered Species Act. Probably the most complete history ever compiled. I'm unbelievably excited for this book to come out. Um, it, it's the amount of detail and research that went into it. I think it's going to be about a thousand-page volume. Uh, it's really it's going to be a uh, seminal piece on uh, on the history of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, the other book, the one that I contributed to, is about the future of the Endangered Species Act and the and the future implementation of it and how we can how we can make it work better for for wildlife and for people. Uh, and and that's the ob- uh, objective from that. So it's you know, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary uh, of the Endangered Species Act this year. And this book is really to look forward the next 50 years. Like, how do we make sure uh, that we're still committed to recovering species, um, but we're doing it in a way that that isn't just putting people out of business, right? Um, that, that's and, and is unlocking the full potential of the act as well. How do we do it creatively with uh, as minimal disruption uh, to people as possible with the most uplift and benefit for the species? You'll have to send me a link to the book when it comes out because that would deeply fascinate me. Um, and then for Safari Club, when you're it, the CLE course, is that for law students? That's for anybody. So oh, anybody, yeah, yeah. On February twenty third, I'm uh, I'll be uh, one of the presenters at a 
uh, wildlife law continuing education course put on by Safari Club International at their annual convention in in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, but you don't have to be present to take it. You can actually, uh, you can register. If you can't make it to Nashville, although I suggest you do, it's a pretty incredible convention. But if you can't make it there, uh, yeah, you can register for it and and take it remotely. It's it's designed to let attorneys get their continuing legal education credit. And what I'm told is Safari Club will will actively work with the bar associ- up to two bar associations for each uh, registrant uh, to get that course approved in their state. If you're licensed in two states, you could get it approved in two states. Uh, they'll do that for you. Uh, so you can get your continuing legal education credit. If you're a law student and you just want to do it, heck yeah, you should do it. And, and it's not limited to just lawyers. It's just designed for lawyers to help you get your continuing legal education credit. But it's open to anybody that wants to uh, to learn more about wildlife and land use law. And, and actually, in that one, I will not be speaking on the Endangered Species Act. I'm going to actually be speaking on uh, access issues in the West, um, some of the history of of some of our big access disputes. How did they come into being? Why did they come into being? And then what's the state of their those issues? So the corner crossing case that people might've heard about in Wyoming and the crazy mm-hmm. mountains case in, in Montana and some of the stream access issues in New Mexico and Colorado. That'll be largely the focus of my talk there. That sounds really good. And if I'm able to make it to Nashville, maybe I'll be able to attend in person and I will make sure all the links you've mentioned about the history of the ESA. And if you want to send me any resources, please do, but we'll include all links to anything you've mentioned, um, your trainings, your seminars, your lectures. I'll, place your social media accounts for people to connect with you, your interview with the New York Times. I thought that was really compelling. And thank you again, David. This was really great, very informative, riveting session. I hope it gets people hungry and eager to learn about the ESA and the nuances with it. So I really appreciate you taking your time to speak with me on this. Well, I appreciate you having me again. Um, I know it can get, I can get a little weedy. That's just the way I am. So, so hopefully it, it, it was okay. Your, your listeners appreciate a little bit of weediness every now and again. Um, but I do appreciate it. And if you want more information on the, on the ESA, we, uh, on our, on our podcast, the Your Mountain podcast in our library, we do have a number of, uh, episodes where we did some pretty deep dives into different parts of the act, uh, as sort of an ESA 101, 202, 303, or whatever you want to call it, like three three classes, crash courses in the ESA. Perfect. Thank you so much, David. This was wonderful, and we'll plug those episodes in as well. Thank you, Gabriella. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.